Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we are in fellowship and ready to study the word. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together to meet as a body of believers to study your word this evening. We're thankful that we have God the Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us, and he's the one who teaches us, makes these things clear, uh, stores these important truths in our soul, and makes them available for us, recalls them to our minds so that we can apply them. Father, we pray that as we study tonight that we would be challenged, that we would be uh, responsive to the teaching of the Holy Spirit as we go through these various passages, and that we would see ways in which we can apply them in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have been studying in Hebrews chapter 10, and we have come to the end of the section that deals with uh, this this uh, fourth section on within the book of Hebrews, dealing with the uh, implications of the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, his completed work on the cross, and his present session. And so what is happening in the time of his present session is he is building for himself, through the Holy Spirit, a body on earth, the body of Christ, which is the church. And so he is, at this time, seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting for his body to be completed, and upon the completion of the body, he will receive the kingdom from the Father. So he's in that position of waiting. The Old Testament picture of this is the picture of David and Saul. When David was anointed to be king, that didn't mean he was king. Saul was still the king. Saul is a type of Satan at that particular, uh, in this particular illustration from the Old Testament. And Saul continues under divine discipline to reign in Israel for approximately another 10 to 15 years, during which time David is uh, out in the wilderness most of the time, being chased after by Saul, being uh, abused, mistreated. Saul feels threatened by David because David is the anointed future king, 
And so David is out with his, in the wilderness of, of, Judah most, of Judea most of the time, uh, forming for himself a body of his mighty men. That's a picture of the church. So that when David then came into his kingdom and David became the king, those who were uh, appointed, those whom he appointed to uh, reign with him and his administrators within his kingdom were taken from his group of mighty men. They became the uh, his appointees in ver- various positions. And so that's a picture of the church, that uh, <clears throat> Jesus Christ is forming a body of believers. And there are certain things that are incumbent upon believers in the church age that's part of our spiritual life, part of our spiritual growth, that is part of the building up of the body of Christ in preparation for that future uh, role to rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the kingdom. And so we have these uh, three commands that come at the end of this teaching section in verses 22, 23, and 24. You have these three uh, first-person plural uh, hortatory subjunctives, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider. And it is verse 24 that we have been looking at the last couple of weeks and drawing out various implications and applications of the mandate that is here. And this is indeed a command. It is, uh, well, it's not in the imperative. There's no first-person imperative in Greek. So what they would use was this was a first-person first-person subjunctive called the hortatory conjunction, and it should be translated with a little more force than let us, which sounds like a, uh, sounds like a nice little invitation, but it has the force of a command. So we could translate it, uh, we must consider one another in order to, or for the purpose of stirring up or uh, provoking Love and good works. This is the main idea that we see in these two verbs that I have up here, or the two Greek words that I have up here. Let us consider is the first word, katanoeo, and stirring up is paroxysmos, which has the idea of inciting action. So that's the idea is we are to think, we are to meditate, we are to brainstorm how we can incite others to push on in the Christian life. That is part of the function of the body of Christ. And if you think about it in terms of many analogies that we could think of, of a, of a team in action, this is not something that is uh, foreign uh, to any of us. When we think about a team, you think about a football team or baseball team, any kind of sports team, basketball, anything like that, or a military team, a group of men that that uh, train together, and then they're going into combat together. They, When they are in training, they're constantly uh, encouraging each other, stimulating each other, coming up with ideas, playing off of each other, uh, learning how to push each other to the limit to perform to their very best, to perform at a level of excellence. You can apply this in just about anything. If you have a, a troupe of dancers or singers, uh, any group of people where there is a group dynamic, there is often this sense of esprit de corps and camaraderie that is built within that that team, and it is not something that is artificially generated, which is my biggest complaint 
the way most of the, uh, this passage is applied in a lot of different churches is you get a various programs that churches come up with to try to get people to do certain things. I mean, the most silly and superficial that I've seen is that you'll often see in some churches, it's everybody, uh, they'll, they'll have visitors. They won't have visitors stand up. They'll have everybody stand up, and then the visitors sit down. Or they'll just have everybody who's a member of the church stand up, and so the visitors are left sitting down, and then everybody crowds around them and says, now tell them you love them and give them a hug. And, and it's, it's forced. It's... Uh, it's just artificial, whereas the commands that we are going to be looking at tonight are to flow out of our relationship with God and the spiritual growth that we have and the motivation that comes as a result of our own walk with the Spirit and our own spiritual life. So it comes out of this inner dynamic of the, uh, of the Holy Spirit and our spiritual growth, and you can't force that on people through various artificial means and say, well, you need to, let's go do this or let's go do this and try this program so we can be a friendlier church. In fact, I've been at churches where, in fact, I was a pastor at a church in Irving that was called Fellowship Bible Church. That wasn't my choice. That was already in existence when I went there, and it was a group of churches that had been actually started by a Dow Seminary professor uh, in the early 70s, and he had had great success with a certain format that he used at a, at a church in Richardson. And that church spun off or spawned off several other churches, and they all had that name, a fellowship, uh, fellowship Bible Church. And one of the things that made them a fellowship church was that there was this emphasis on fellowship. But I have been in churches that had a reputation for not being very friendly, and I've had a great, greater fellowship and grace, greater social life at uh, churches like that than I had at a church that was supposed to be known for its fellowship because it ultimately boils down to the people. It boils down to their spiritual life, and it boils down to those real spiritual factors that are intangibles that can't be uh, manufactured and they can't be imposed on people uh, from the outside. This has to come from people who are serious about their own spiritual life, and they have their own internal excitement and enthusiasm about the Word of God. And you see that if you think about some of the analogies that we could use other than the body uh, to portray that kind of team operation, because as we'll see when we get uh, into some of the passages in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans that this the Paul uses this analogy of a body for a couple of different reasons but I think one is because there it, it's alive it's not a, he could talk about some sort of inanimate object that has many different parts that all work together but he chooses an analogy that is living that is dynamic that is interactive because that's the nature of the body of Christ, the church. It's a living organism. It is dynamic, and it receives its real energy from God, the Holy Spirit, and from the Word of God. So it's not just as it impacts individuals, but as that then plays itself out within this interconnected relationship between believers. Now, that's not saying that our spiritual life is dependent or that it is even produced by those relationships. But 
man was created in the image of God, and God himself is a social being. So we can't uh, deny that social aspect of our nature. We're created to be that way. And as I pointed out last time, one of the problems that I think we've seen and uh, that I've seen in reading a lot of literature about the nature of the church is that too many people today look at the church as a social social uh, organism as opposed to an educational organism. And if you look at it as primarily social and emphasize fellowship, you don't understand fellowship in the first place. Fellowship in the Bible uh, in the New Testament ultimately and almost always relates to fellowship with God and the fellowship that believers have with one another is a byproduct of that primary walk with God and fellowship with God. But if you put your focus there on social activity in a church and what happens, as I've observed in many churches that I've been associated with, is all of a sudden your your leadership becomes focused on building the social life of the congregation, how to somehow increase uh, their their social interaction, friendships in the congregation, things like that, and the education aspect of the of the local church gets somehow lost in the need for all these warm fuzzies and social interaction. But when you put the emphasis on education, which is the focus, the objective, as stated in Scripture, that the focus is to learn the Word of God, to renew our thinking to be equipped to do the work of the ministry through the teaching of the Word of God. You see these mandates listed over and over again related to thinking, related to study, related to concentration. Then the byproduct of that is going to be in the social life. When I went to college, I think I had a pretty good, probably too good a social life. But I don't think that was at all the concern of the trustees of the university except to maybe want to figure out ways to restrain the social life of uh, college kids rather than promote it because they're naturally going to get involved in social activities. And so if they did anything, it was just just trying to curb all that energy into uh, productive, uh, productive areas. But the primary focus was on education, knowing that that, that fellowship, the friendships would develop as a, as a result of that. And that's the idea that you have, uh, in, in the scriptures that the focus of the church is on education. It is a classroom, not a, not sort of a stale, sterile classroom, but it is a classroom related to learning about life, ultimately, how to live and think about everything that we encounter in life from the framework of the Word of God, and that is going to impact relationships, and there is a dynamic that takes place within the body of Christ between believers that is, the Lord Jesus Christ said, is something distinctive that will stand out, that is going to be different from that that you will encounter uh, in the pagan world. And so the main command here to consider or to think, to brainstorm, says, let us consider or think about one another, and then there are going to be two participles. The main verb is going to be modified or clarified by two participles that come up in verse 25. The first one is a negative. The second one is a positive. The first one is uh, not forsaking. The second one is exhorting. And what we'll see is these two uh, words are participles that indicate 
that are related as in the category of means to the main uh, to the main verb. So the verse reads, "Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together." Now the context of the assembling together is not in just any format. It's not assembling together down at Starbucks. It's not assembling together in an Internet chat room. It's not assembling together uh, to go on a shopping day. It's not assembling together uh, on MySpace or Twitter or any of these other social uh, networking things that happen on the Internet. And I'm not saying that not putting those things down that there there's there's some good things that happen as a result of these as believers get together for various reasons but that is not the meeting of the church that's the that's the context here of of Hebrews chapter 10 it's the meeting of the body of Christ and the focal point of any of the meeting of the body of Christ is the word of God and it is the teaching of the word of God that is the dynamic under the teaching ministry of the God, the Holy Spirit, that then produces this as a, <clears throat> as a byproduct. So the first participle that's used is uh, not forsaking. It's the Greek word enkatalepo, which means to leave something behind, to forsake, or to abandon something. It is something that is intentional. It's a present active uh, participle, and it modifies the command to think so, uh, or to concentrate, to reflect on, to meditate on ways to uh, stimulate, excite one another to action. And so you're not doing that by not meeting together, by avoiding, by not being involved in a local church. Now, a local church can be anything from a family in some cases to two or three families, house churches, which is what, frankly, what you have in a lot of the history of the church is you think about frontier circumstances, you think about people in uh, various uh, third world countries uh, that have had very little other believers around where they may be very small. In fact, there's a man um, who uses material from, uh, <clears throat> from the church here who has, I think, 40 or 50 house churches that he works with in Indonesia. And they have seen a number of uh, Muslims uh, converted, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, including a, an, an imam, and they are uh, teaching them the word. And this is happening uh, in, in Indonesia. And so they meet in these very small groups because they can't really call a lot of attention to themselves. Otherwise, uh, the authorities may come down on them and they may come under persecution. So when I talk about meeting in a local church, don't get a sticks and bricks concept of a local church in your head. Uh, it can be in many different formats. If you're not large enough to have your own pastor, which is true in some cases, then you may be using some, thankfully we have electronic means to do that. But the, the negative of that is we've seen people, and we all know people like this, who have gone to the extreme of, saying, well, even though there's a church five minutes from my house and, and I agree with everything that they teach there, uh, my pastor is really 3,000 miles away, so I'm just going to live my whole Christian life in front of my tape recorder. And that is, n that is not the idea that we have in Scripture. We have in Scripture 
the, the, the normative pattern of believers meeting together in real time, not, not virtually, uh, so that there is this framework for interaction among members of the body of Christ, and that is uh, you, where that circumstances, if you're truly in isolation, like you're in the uh, outback in Australia or someplace like that, and there's no other, or even in some of the major cities in Australia, from what I understand, and there's nobody, no other believers around that you can really have any kind of uh, meeting with, then, of course, the only thing you're left with is some kind of of interaction with, uh, thankfully you have a computer and there can be some interaction with other believers that way, but that is an exception. That is not to be normative. And so when I get a little bit <coughs> irritated about some of these things, I'm really thinking about people who, not. I'm not thinking about people who have legitimate reasons to be home. I know there's always people who have a very tender conscious, conscience, and when I'm talking about... Um, something like this, and they're out there live streaming, and they're six blocks from here, and they have a legitimate health reason for not being here, they feel guilty because they're not. I'm not talking to people like that. I'm not trying to make them feel guilty. I'm really talking about people that I run into every now and then, and I know of one case where I know a man who lives within a mile of here, and uh, he doesn't really get involved with any other believers. It's just him and his tape recorder because that's, that's sufficient. And um, and that's not the normative pattern. Doesn't mean that uh, by being involved with the local assembly that you can't listen to uh, your favorite Bible teacher for uh, ten or fifteen hours a week. Of course you can, but that you can't uh, replace being involved with the local church because that's where your spiritual gift functions. That's where you can uh, meet in the local church with other believers. Uh, for the Lord's table. So the normative pattern in the scriptures is meeting together physically. So we're not to abandon the assembling of ourselves together. And this Greek word is episunagoge, which is an intensified form of the, of the noun sunagoge, meaning which would, to a uh, Jewish believer, would bring up the whole idea of the synagogue. That's where the word synagogue comes from is this Greek word meaning an assembly or gathering together. So the use of this word in Hebrews as in James, the word uh, church or ecclesia, does not occur in the epistle of James either. In place of it, you have the assembly of believers in the use of the word synagogue. So the idea here and the use of this word indicates the meeting of believers together, and this would be the meeting of the, of the church. So we're not to forsake or to abandon the meeting of the local church with other believers, as is the manner of some, but instead we are to be able to fulfill this mandate by coming together and encouraging one another. This is the Greek word parakaleo, meaning to summon or to invite, has a range of meanings. From the root is kaleo, meaning to call, and it has a prepositional prefix para indicating an intensification of that. It's used to encourage, implore. The noun form parakletos is what's used of the of the uh, Holy Spirit as a comforter, assistant, as one who comes alongside to strengthen. So these are the. This is the range of meaning in this particular word, 
and then it has a certainly a future orientation because we're to do this so much more uh, so much the more as you see the day approaching meaning it's preparation for that future dynamic of the body of Christ ruling and reigning in the millennial kingdom not a bunch of individuals doing their own thing can you imagine what it'd be like to take nine men who don't know each other and they're not allowed to talk to each other and they're told to get out on the uh, baseball uh, diamond and they are going to uh, play against another team and they can't when, whenever when somebody does something good they can't scream and shout for him and tell him how great he did and if he fump, uh, if he drops the ball or or messes up commits an error they can't say well that happens come on you can do better the next time and encourage him they can't talk like that at all they just have to stick and focus on their particular uh, arena of operation well that would be that would be silly but yet there are people who think that's how the local church uh, can operate, and, um, and that's just not the team idea that we have in the Scriptures. So I have expanded the translation here to give us a little greater sense of what this text means. You must think about how to rouse one another to love and good deeds, which just summarizes the spiritual life. But this is not accomplished by staying away from the assembly of the church, as is the manner of some, but by encouraging each other when you come together in the assembly of the local church as you see the day drawing, drawing near. So the focus here is really on this command to think about how to incite, to rouse, to encourage one another. And so this brings us to a very important doctrine within the scripture, the doctrine of one another. And the phrase is used many times in Scripture, and so I have around 20 points or so related to the doctrine of one another. So first point. <clears throat> the Greek word that's used here is alelon. Alelon is, in a genitival form, the way it appears, with the uh, omega nu ending, and it indicates the idea of each other or of one another, indicating a certain uh, connectiveness, even in the the grammar, a belongingness. Uh, the genitive often has that that idea of possession or ownership or relationship, and so that is that is part of the form format of this word that we are of each other, of one another, belonging to each other, and so the word indicates uh, one person relationship to others within a group. Now, most of the New Testament context where this word is used, it's related to congregations. Now, there are places where you have the Pharisees conspiring with one another and other contexts like that. But within the epistles, the word is used numerous times to express the relationship of one believer uh, to another. So that the idea is how believers within a congregation, as the local representative of the, a representation of the body of Christ, how local how believers within a local body uh, should treat other believers in that congregation. So it is it describes that dynamic that should take place within a group of believers as a result of their spiritual growth. 
So it applies to how one believer relates to another believer. That's the context, believer to believer, not believer to unbeliever, not uh, not talking about how you uh, relate to those at work, not that these principles can't apply, but that's not what the context is in the New Testament. The New Testament is talking about how individuals within the body of Christ relate to one another, specifically within a local congregation, a local manifestation of the universal body of Christ. Now, point number two, the most frequent command related to one another that we find in the Scripture is to love one another. In fact, as we look at these, what we'll see is that that most of the other commands simply describe different facets of what it means to love one another. So 15 times in the New Testament, we have a command to love one another. It's repeated uh, over and over again by three different writers. So you'd think the Holy Spirit wanted us to pay attention to this. John emphasizes it, both from the teaching of Christ in the Upper Room Discourse, John 13 through 16, uh, but also in his epistles in First John and um, uh, Third John, I believe. Paul also reiterates this several times, as does Peter. So it is a primary focus of the writers of the New Testament in the epistles, which are designed to teach church-age believers how to live, how to operate, how to handle every circumstance in life, uh, during the church age. So uh, we also see that these last point there is that the other 18 one another's are all just manifestations of this one command. It involves humility. We can't be narcissistic. We can't be uh, focusing on ourselves. We can't be self-absorbed and love others. Love drives us to think about other people, not just to th- think about what's going on in our in our own life. It involves forgiveness because there's always going to be times and whenever we're working with other people, because other peoples are sinners just like we are, that whenever we're dealing with other people, there are going to be times when we get on each other's nerves, when we irritate each other, when we make each other angry, and yet we have to come back and recognize that Jesus, none of us have offended anyone else in life to the degree that we all offended the Lord's righteousness. Okay, let me say that again. There, you have not offended anybody in life, and no one in life has offended you. That makes it a little more personal. No matter how you've been hurt, no matter how you've been betrayed, no matter how you've been mistreated or abused, no human being has uh, offended you to the degree that each of us as fallen sinners had offended the righteousness of God. And yet God, because of the payment that Christ made on the cross for sin, has forgiven us. And so that then becomes the basis for the fact that we in turn can and are to forgive others. So this is part of what it means to love love one another. It involves being kind. This is just an application of grace orientation. 
good manners, being kind, being nice to other people, uh, being gentle, even if they're customer service personnel on the phone, uh, putting up with each other in various situations because we know that we all face uh, different challenges, different problems, different uh, frustrations in life. And so we are willing to put up with each other because of we understand the broader picture of our spiritual life. And then in terms of negative commands, we're not to judge, which means to uh, malign one another mentally based on uh, assuming we know other people's motives, uh, gossiping about one another, and uh, these kinds of things. So we are to have a certain mentality towards one another because we're all members of the royal family of God. And so there's a certain behavior code that goes along with being a member of God's family and treating others who are in that family, even if they're like the prodigal son and they're out wallowing in a pig trough and, and throwing the garbage at us. We have to handle them in a certain uh, way. Now, the foundational command on this is found in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, and I'm not going to have you turn and look at every verse we look at, but I would like you to turn and look at this verse because it is central to all of the other, all the other uh, commands that we have related to loving one another. This is the starting point, the foundation. Now, as we've done many times, as we've gone through John 13, we went through it not long ago in our study in Hebrews as we talked about uh, forgiveness and cleansing and washing and all of the imagery there. Uh, the context of these uh, verses, John 13, 34, and 35, is a context of the Passover Passover meal, Jesus' instruction to the disciples at the end of the Passover meal, after he has uh, sent Judas away, this is when Jesus begins to teach his disciples about the standards of behavior, the protocols, if you will, of the Christian life, just laying down the foundation. Now, if you look at the context here, we're told in verse 1, before the, now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, that is really a summary statement of this section that is going to extend through the end of the gospel. And it is showing that Jesus is going to teach and then demonstrate what he means by love. And that includes not only the crucifixion, but also his instruction afterward. Just hold your place here just a minute. I want to connect a couple of dots for you. But love is one of the primary words that you find at the end of John, you find it uh, a number of times up through John 17, which is uh, the, the high priestly prayer. Then in John 18 and John 19, you don't find the word. Hmm, how interesting. Why is that? Because that's when Jesus is arrested and crucified, and that's when he is demonstrating what love is. 
And then after the resurrection, when he, he appears to the apostles, and look at John chapter 21, down to verse 15. Jesus has this little interchange with, with Peter. He's trying to teach Peter something about forgiveness. There's a connection here between forgiveness and love. Because Peter, the last time uh, Jesus had really, or Peter had spent time talking or interacting with Jesus, Peter had said, well, I'm not going to betray you. And nobody cares more about you than I do. And then, of course, he betrayed the Lord before the uh, cock crowed the next morning. And so Peter is feeling uh, guilty because he betrayed his Lord despite his braggadocia that he would not do that. And so the Lord has to teach uh, Peter a little lesson in humility. And that is tied up with understanding love and understanding forgiveness. And so the, the way the story unfolds after the resurrection is that the disciples go back to uh, Galilee and they're out fishing. They're not having any luck. And so Jesus told them to appears on the on the on the shore and tells them that they need to uh, cast their uh, nets on the other side of the uh, of, of the boat and they will pull in uh, as many fish as they can possibly as the net can possibly hold uh, which is what they do and at that point they suddenly recognize who this is on the beach and so they come into the beach and they uh, Jesus starts cooking breakfast for them must have been a good breakfast and um, he has this little conversation then with Peter after breakfast. He looks at Peter in verse 15. He says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these, meaning more than everyone else? A little reminder of uh, Peter's braggadocia before the, the cross that he loved the Lord so much he wouldn't betray him. And Peter responds and says, yes, Lord, you know that I loved you, love you. And so Jesus says, okay, feed my lambs goes on, verse 16, he repeats it, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Uh, there's a lot of things going on in this passage that I'm not going to address because I, there's all kinds of uh, uh, synonyms used here to get across a number of different points. And there's two different words used for love here, both, um, both phileo as well as agapao. But he's, Jesus is driving home the point uh, to Peter that love means to obey him. Now, that comes out of this whole discourse that we have in chapter 13. It also means that that begins in 13. So from 13, when Jesus introduces this new commandment that we're to love one another, all the way to the end of the gospel... Love is a major theme that everything relates to in terms of the teaching as a core element in um, in the Christian life. So in, in John 13 itself, he starts off in the upper room, as we've studied so many times, washing their feet. And a lot of times people will... Uh, hear sermons or Sunday school classes on the importance of being a servant and taking care of each other. And, and, and in fact, there are some denominations that take this very literally. And whenever they have the Lord's table, they literally wash each other's feet. 
I've never been to one of those services, and I'm sort of glad that I haven't, but I uh, can't imagine that. I guess you have to make sure you really uh, have clean socks on that morning. But they do that literally. But the focus here isn't on washing people's feet. The washing of the feet, as we've seen in our study, is a picture of that partial washing that occurs in with confession of sin that comes after the complete washing that occurs at salvation. Remember the original picture of this that lies behind these two words that are used for washing. One word means a partial washing. Another word means a complete washing or a bath. That when Jesus began to wash Peter's feet, using the word nipto, meaning a partial washing, Peter said, no, Lord, you're not going to wash me. And the Lord said, well, well, uh, Peter... Uh, you, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will understand this later on. And then Peter said, no, Lord, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. And the Lord said, Peter, if I don't wash you, nipto, just partial washing, uh, you will have no part with me. And there the word for part is that, that Greek word meros. It's also used for a share of an inheritance, a portion of one one's inheritance. So it has to do with... Uh, our inheritance in Christ, our uh, the the rewards that we receive are predicated upon our spiritual growth. Spiritual growth occurs when we are in fellowship with Christ, fellowship with God, walking by the Holy Spirit. And when we are walking by the Holy Spirit, uh, we have been cleansed of our sin. When we sin, we're out of fellowship. Uh, so there has to be that partial. Uh, cleansing and the total cleansing is what occurred at salvation when we're positionally cleansed, uh, washed uh, by means of the Holy Spirit, washing of regeneration, Titus 3.5. We are completely clean, but then we dirty our feet along the way, and so we have to use 1 John 1.9 to confess our sins in order to have that uh, cleansing restored so that we can continue to grow and and move forward. So the washing of the feet has to do with a picture of forgiveness. So in verse 10, Jesus said, He who is bathed, that is, he who is completely washed, referring to a believer, the one who's totally cleansed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. See, we recover that full cleansing when we confess our sins. Then we are back in fellowship. So the picture of the cleansing... The foot washing is a picture of forgiveness. It begins, its foundation is Jesus cleansing us. We are cleansed by our, at the time of confession of sin. So we're cleansed by, by God. And then Jesus says, if you Look down a few verses to verse 15. He says, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Now that's that other kind of forgiveness. That's the forgiveness of toward one another. So Jesus is modeling the fact that what precedes forgiveness for one another is forgiveness from God. And that that pictures for us how we are to forgive one another. Now, that portrayal of forgiveness is within the broader context of the 
concept of love. That's why the chapter begins reminding us that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, and he t- talks about love all the way through the chapters. So then we come down to verse 34, 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. And this is the uh, Greek word, a kine, indicating a change, a new kind of commandment uh, that Jesus is giving to us that you love one another even as I have loved you. Now, in Leviticus 19.18, we have a commandment in the Old Testament that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. That is a command within the Mosaic Law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, who are you supposed to love in that example? Your neighbor. Well, your neighbor may be a believer or an unbeliever, but it could be an unbeliever. And the pattern for loving the unbeliever is yourself, as you love yourself. Now, there are some people who say, well, not everybody loves themselves. Some people have a bad self-image, and they don't love themselves. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that every man loves himself. Ephesians chapter 5, it's it's presented as a standard principle. Everybody loves himself. Even if you hate yourself or think you hate yourself, you really don't hate yourself. You've just disappointed yourself because you love yourself so much. And the reason you hate yourself is because you haven't lived up to the high standards that you think you should be living up to because you love yourself. But the natural orientation of the fallen human soul is to love itself. It is self-absorbed and in love with itself. So the Old Testament pattern is to love everyone, believer and unbeliever, like you love yourself. But Jesus changes that. He says... You are to love one another, and the one another does not include unbelievers. doesn't mean that we're to be nasty to unbelievers. But he's focusing on the dynamic within the body of Christ. You are to love one another, that is, other believers, as I have loved you. Not as you love yourself, but as Jesus loved you. Now, that really ratchets the... Uh, the standard up extremely high. And the only way that we can do that is if God the Holy Spirit is producing that kind of love in us. That's why love is the first fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians chapter 5. In the context, broader context from Galatians uh, 5.13 all the way down to the end of the chapter is grows out of a command uh, to, to love. So Jesus gives a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he repeats it, that you also love one another. And by this, that is by this love for one another, and I, it's not by the doctrine that's it, that you know, not by how many doctrinal notebooks you have. I'm not saying that it's, I'm not putting that down. You, that's the means to the end, but it's not the end. It's not how much you know. It's not the extent of your theological vocabulary. It's not uh, any of the other things that people want to emphasize that somehow are barometers for their spiritual life. It has to do with character. And it is love for one another because that is the ultimate sign and indication of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens only because... 
we have spent a tremendous amount of time studying the Word under the filling of the Holy Spirit and applying it consistently in how we think, how we act, what we do, just applying the principles of Scripture. And as we go through that process of spiritual growth, failure, recovery, again and again, down through time, then a capacity for love develops uh, within our soul that is unique and distinct. It can't be manufactured. Unbelievers can't do this. Maybe here and there they might rise to uh, an occasion and have a semblance of unselfish love, but this cannot be produced by the energy of the flesh. It can only be, this kind of love can only be produced by God the Holy Spirit. And so it becomes the sign, Jesus says, by this, by the way in which believers love one another, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. Not just believers, but disciples. A disciple is a distinct category of believer that has decided to push on beyond simply being justified so they have eternity in heaven, but someone who wants to grow and mature uh, to the fullest extent that they can. So it is. <clears throat> this it indicates that someone has grown and matured if they have love for one another. So how many times are we told to love one another in this two verses? Three times, as if it's important. Then in John 15, 12, just two chapters later, within the uh, context again of the uh, upper room discourse, uh, Jesus says, uh, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So again, the commandment is reiterated that he is the standard. So we have to understand how Jesus loves us. That takes a lot of time. That takes a lot of investigation and study of the word of God to understand how Jesus loved us, how God the Father loved us, and all that's involved in that love. And at the very core of that is understanding the whole concept of grace, that that love is unmerited, it's unearned, it is based totally and exclusively on the character of God and who he is and what Christ did on the cross. And so it means that we have to fully investigate and understand all of the dynamics that went into salvation. So Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And again, just uh, six verses later, five verses later, John fifteen seventeen, these things I command you, that you love uh, one another. And so all through John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, there are various other uh, mandates, statements made by the Lord related to love. For example, in John 15, 13, Jesus said, uh, Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for his friends, which is what he is going to do uh, on the cross. Well, the next time we have this mentioned as we go through the Scriptures is in Romans uh, 13, 8. Romans 13, 8, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Here he's not talking about the Mosaic law as this is the, the plan of God. That this is going back to Jesus' command as this new commandment to love, uh, to love one another. He's not talking about how to get saved. He's talking about 
the outworking of a person's, a justified person's spiritual life. The concept there of owe no one anything is an imperative. In these slides, I've put a little exclamation point by the main verb, which expresses that this is a command, a mandate uh, for the spiritual life. Now, I've heard a lot of people uh, teach using this verse as an economics verse that we're not supposed to get in, in debt. That's not really the idea here. I don't, I don't think that's a legitimate application. What, what Paul is talking about here is that we should not, uh, as people, be indebted to anyone else, which means that, um, that we owe them something. We, we are indebted to them, not financially, but in terms of, of behavior. Maybe we have uh, not forgiven them, uh, something along those lines, uh, or we have sinned against them. In contrast, we are not to have that be beholden to anybody in any way, but we are to love one another. That is the primary, uh, the primary command for the spiritual life. Then, as I mentioned earlier in Galatians chapter 5, uh, Paul states in Galatians 5.13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use your liberty uh, as opportunity for the flesh, that is, opportunity to fulfill the sin nature, but through love we are to serve one another. And there's a command. So this really comes up a couple of different ways in the, in the uh, one another lessons. We're to love, but that love is exemplified through serving one another. Then 1 Thessalonians 3.12 states, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. And here, the, uh, the verbs here are in, uh, infinitives, but they are imperatival infinitives. So again, the emphasis is on the mandate to increase in love and uh, abound in love. May the Lord make you increase and abound, uh, abound in love through spiritual growth, spiritual uh, maturity. Then we have 1 Thessalonians 4.9, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Again, you have an imperatival sense there to the, uh, to the syntax of the passage. This is not an option. Second uh, Thessalonians 1.3, Paul says, uh, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. Now, faith grows exceedingly because you study the Word and you apply the Word, and your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward one another. It continues to grow. There is this genuine care and concern for each other because of the uh, spiritual growth that precedes that. First uh, Peter one twenty two. Peter writes, Since you have purified your souls by obeying the truth, that should be understood in an instrumental sense, uh, and the idea there again is cleansing, being in fellowship. You have purified your souls by obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren. Then we have the command again, love one another fervently with a pure heart. And then we have passages in 1 John, several passages in 1 John and then 2 John. 1 John 3.11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, again, with an imperatival sense. 
1 John 3.23, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. 1 John 4.7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, from God, and everyone who loves is born from God and knows God. It's a result of spiritual growth. You only know God as you grow spiritually after salvation. 1 John 4.11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Again, an imperatival, uh, imperatival infinitive there. First John 4.12, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been matured in us. And then Second John 5, And now I plead with you, lady, as though, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that is the beginning of the church age, that we love one another. So those are the uh, 15 different uses of this command to love one another. And the reason I wanted to go through all of that is because this isn't something that is just stated one time or two times. It's again and again and again. And even when it's not stated precisely as love one another, it is stated in other, in other ways. Now, the third point in our doctrine of one another is that we are to encourage one another. We are to encourage one another. And we find this in two passages in Romans 112 and also in, our, excuse me, three passages, Romans 112, 1 Thessalonians 4.18 and 1 Thessalonians 5.18. And in each of these, um, in these passages, we have a slightly different word in Romans 1:12, but it is a uh, it is a form of the other of the other word. In First Thessalonians 4:18 and 5:11, we have the word parakaleo, which is the same word we have in in our passage in Hebrews 10 to comfort, to encourage, to come alongside, to strengthen, to uh, exhort or challenge, and um, and then the intensified form. Sum parakaleo is used in Romans 1, uh, 1, 1.12. So Romans 1.12, Paul says that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you one another of us. See, it doesn't translate well in English, but you don't have the one another come across in most English translations. So I I put it in there uh, to give you the sense of where that word is that Paul is saying that he wants to be encouraged. Here's the Apostle Paul, and he is encouraged and strengthened by being with other believers and this mutual ministry that we have in one another's lives by being together with them uh, by the other's faith, by their positive volition, by their encouragement in the Word, that we gain great uh, encouragement when we understand that there are others, other believers that are positive, that it's not just uh, you and I and a few others, but that there are uh, many others who believe the same way we believe and are studying the Word and the Word of God as a priority. That is encouraging to us to meet with a group of believers just by the virtue of numbers. That's not a sign of weakness. That is normal in life. When you go to a uh, a class and there's only one person there and you never see more than maybe two or three others, 
you're not as you, you may be a little concerned that uh, <clears throat> that that things aren't going very well. But when there's a large number, that the numbers do encourage you. It's not that you're putting the emphasis on numbers or using those as a barometer. It's just that we become encouraged when we see others responding to the truth. In First uh, Thessalonians 4:18, uh, Paul uses the word uh, parakaleo. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So the comfort comes from doctrine. The priority is always on doctrine. It is not on, uh, you know, social relationships or dependence on people. That there's no sense of that anywhere in Scripture. But we are to comfort one another with the words of Scripture. Same thing in First Thessalonians 5:11. This is in the context of. Uh, uh, also, in the context of grief, First Thessalonians, therefore comfort and one, each other and edify one another. So there's two different words here used for the one another activity. Comfort and edify or build up one another just as you also are doing. And so we have these two different Greek words that are used in these passages, sum parakaleo and parakaleo, emphasizing that uh, that dimension of our one another ministry. Now that's the first three points. We've got 17 more to go. A lot to this, so we'll come back next time for start on point number uh, point number four. Father, we thank you for the fact that we get to study your word, that we get to go through these passages to be challenged by the fact that this is a unique organism that we're part of in the body of Christ and that there are certain behaviors expected of us within the body of Christ toward one another, that this can't be produced by our own energy, by our own efforts, but it's produced by God the Holy Spirit as we study the Word, and we see uh, your character produced in us through God the Holy Spirit as we exhibit this as a testimony of our grace orientation and the application of your Word to both other, others in the world, unbelievers, as well as to angels. We pray that you challenge us with all these things we've studied. In Christ's name, amen.